The materials provided are for information only and do not constitute as an offer. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors. Neither Zach or Jack are financial advisors. The information contained in this podcast episode has been compiled with considerable care to ensure its accuracy at the date of publication. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made to accuracy or completeness. We shall not be responsible for any consequential effect, nor be liable for any direct, consequential, incidental, indirect loss or damage, however caused, arising from the use of, inability to use, or reliance upon any information or materials provided on this podcast, whether or not such loss or damage is caused by us. Links to third-party sites are provided for your information only. The content and software of these sites have been issued by third parties. As such, we cannot be responsible for the accuracy of information contained in these sites, nor be held liable for any loss or damage arising from or related to their use. Investors should be cautious about any and all crypto asset and investment recommendations and should consider the source of any advice on crypto asset selection. Various factors, including personal or corporate ownership, may influence or factor into an expert's stock analysis or opinion. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual crypto assets before making a purchase decision. In addition, investors are advised that past crypto asset performance is no guarantee of future price appreciation. Do not invest money you cannot afford to lose. All investments come with a degree of risk. Jack, how are you doing? Zach, I'm doing extremely well. Uh, it's very good to talk to you. I'm very excited to be talking about crypto again. It's actually been a while since we recorded one of these. And so, you know, the world has changed a little bit. Our thinking has changed a little bit. And we have another exciting guest. Uh, why don't you give him a proper introduction? Yeah, this man is someone who I've had the pleasure of speaking with twice now in a couple different capacities. And on our, our last call, I learned a lot about security tokens, and I felt it was only right to share that with our listenership. So today we have on the co-founder of Exponential Ventures, James Wallace. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Zach. Happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you here. So first, James, I'd love to learn uh, just about how you started being passionate about Crypto, blockchain, security tokens, what's the what's the story? Oh wow, that's a big question. I think, you know, obviously the, the genesis is my impact and initial engagement with technology, which started in the nineties. Built my first website, my first web application essentially in the nineties. And I think at a very early young age realized the impact, um, the ability to scale. The ability to create efficiencies and so on, and the ability, uh, again, to, to, I think, increase impact. And I think, you know, carrying that forward from the 90s to about 2009, 2010, I, I was probably one of the first that downloaded the, the initial, you know, Bitcoin blockchain. I didn't approach it from, from a currency holder, speculator, investor standpoint. I really approached it from, from kind of a sovereign, currency standpoint so looking at how nation states have really messed up economic policy and and uh, sound economics and good judgment in as far as managing a nation's uh, assets I, I was really looking at and studying at the time how could how would the people do it if the the people had the power to manage assets and, and manage their own currencies and trade uh, between themselves without intermediaries, how would they do it? And I think it started in about 2007, 2008, and then in 2009, stumbled upon the the white paper, the infamous uh, Satoshi paper, and then just downloaded this thing and forgot about it for a while. And I think really, you know, didn't understand the impact at that time. It took me a couple of years to to understand the implications, but really focused on growing my understanding of blockchain in general, like how the you know the byzantine army general's dilemma uh, a lot of the uh, cryptographic uh, solutions that that were uh, brought forward that solved a lot of problems that had plagued us since uh, the beginning of computing so it was very early engagement and i think i got lost in it for for a couple of years uh, and really focused in on 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 the ground and the framework and the implications and and it grew from there what were some of those problems initial problems that you felt cryptography helped uh, solve? Well, I think, you know, the, the there's a lot of talk for people that are in the uh, digital asset and, and, and crypto and blockchain space about how the internet was created with the assumption that you could trust each other. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's kind of cool that we humans thought that we could trust each other. Um, I think it goes to the human spirit uh, that we want to. But when we create a platform and invite a bunch of people 
anywhere from completely transparent to fully anonymous and allow them to engage each other, whether, whether it's commercially or socially, uh, we're going to end up with some bad actors and some bad players. And so in those engagements, again, whether commercial or social, the fact that trust was implied uh, as, as opposed to you know, what, what blockchain is essentially putting forward as a trustless environment. So removing the need to trust each other, we're obviously seeing, I think, a clearer, more stable, scalable value exchange. So essentially, in a trustless environment, we can be more trusting. And I think that was one of the greatest flaws. I mean, the internet is arguably the, the greatest invention um, in the history of, of humankind, but it had a very uh, flawed uh, assumption at the beginning, and I think we're beginning to solve that. So you know, I can get into a little bit in the future or, or further on here how I think blockchain is going to replace the internet. But I think that that, among other things, fundamentally is probably the greatest um, thing that it will bring us. Well, do you think uh, blockchain will ever be fast enough to replace the internet? Yeah, I think with you know looking at Hyperledger and a bunch of um, current you know tech teams that are, are trying to challenge that scalability thing. I think when I look at the earlier tech stacks, you know, in the, in the even the late '80s, let alone you know even before, but but in the early '90s when we started even considering a commercial aspect to the internet, some very very basic issues in scalability. So. You know, I, I think it's a very valid uh, concern, but we've already started to, to see some pretty extraordinary leaps uh, in scalability. And I, I would just imagine like everything is on an exponential curve and, and that would, would be the same. It'll probably be multiple exponentials because we have some of the smartest people in the world solving blockchain issues right now. So my answer is yes, but I definitely would, would understand a skeptical opinion on that. I'm not super skeptical of it blockchain technology will continue to improve in scalability and will become more and more competitive with the current set of capabilities that we have with the internet. But I think if you're presuming exponential growth, then you know, you're still going to be competing with existing technology that has a similar growth, growth curve, one would think. And so replace current or many of the current functions of the internet, I could see much more easily than just replace the internet. But I like the optimism, and I hope—I mean, I hope you're right. I'll—I'll I'll come out ahead if you were right. So. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I think that, that when you really start to look at uh, the amount of waste that that is the internet, and sixty percent of the internet is bot traffic, and you know the forty percent that is arguably potentially human, which I'm not even sure that that's real. I think that that's probably double or triple what it is. The amount of waste in again a transaction, and everything's a transaction. So going to a web page. We have assets that load. That's a, a certain type of web server transaction. We hit the database on a query. That's a, a transaction. We talk to another person, post on their page. That's a transaction. We buy something, clearly a transaction. There's just so much waste that goes on uh, in that. And a lot of it is, in my opinion, because we don't have uh, proper in infrastructures. We don't have, again, a lot of trust. So we spend a lot of time and energy in uh, engagements and transactions in, sh in trying to build in trust into an environment that uh, that doesn't uh, have any actually. So I, I think again, I see like uh, this kind of odd. Um, we're we're talking about argu like arguably, and, and I guess to a certain degree, an inefficient technology at the moment. Blockchain, as everyone knows, uh, does not scale very well right now in its current manifestation. With a couple, like I said, Hyperledger and a couple others that I think have proven to a certain degree scalability. But we also are oddly looking at something that creates efficiency insofar as that it creates a trusted transaction. And when we have that, what I think we often fail to see is all of the additional transactions that go away simply because of that. So, you know, you look again at like a, a typical banking transaction, a lot is going on in the background to ensure that that's a safe transaction based on a completely, you know, inefficient model. A lot of third-party verifications, um, a lot of redundancy in terms of the systems that the banks require to protect against fraud and so on. All that goes away, uh, which I think is is pretty extraordinary. But when you look at you know the future of blockchain, at, at the core of our investment thesis, we have three you know predictions, and one of them, you know, Andreessen famously said that. Uh, software is eating, eating, eating the world. Well, we believe that blockchain will eat the internet. And essentially, what we'll end up with is a lot of, you know, any everything from land registration 
to uh, to obviously finance and, and commercial transactions and so on. We'll have probably one to three major blockchains to facilitate the transactions of all these things. Um, and I, I actually see the social transaction. I think we'll probably have a single social you know blockchain, maybe two, maybe three, probably not likely. And and where humans will innovate is in all things that are new. So you know I could get into a bunch of exponentially accelerating technologies and technologies that really haven't um, become uh, commonplace or available, uh, evenly distributed. But I think that a lot of these things will become commodities, and that blockchains essentially will just engage each other and provide again this this uh, this trustless uh, environment where where we have just tons of efficiency. So it's interesting that. Um this is your view, and yet it seems like you have a strong focus on what is maybe a more conservative sort of element of the blockchain world being security tokens. I wonder, one, if you would agree with that characterization of the security token sort of projects being a more conservative application of blockchain relative to some of what we're seeing in the utility token space. Um, but also, what what's made you gravitate towards that sector of crypto application? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I think it's fair to, to apply that label uh, to it. We do have uh, probably one of the most liberal uh, views on on what will come. Like We actually think that we're currently uh, assisting in some small way migrating civilization to abundance. You know, Our non-technical investment thesis at Exponential Ventures is that we invest in startups that alleviate suffering uh, or expand human potential to enable meaningful living. We believe that meaningful living is a human right. We believe that systems of control have blocked access to that right for, for most of the world's population. We want to invest in things that, um, that, that, that remove these gatekeepers and value extractors and allow humans to, to transact uh, together. So, you know, it's a pretty wild, bold vision that we have, but you know, it's interesting how we ended up uh, coming to a fairly, if we continue to use that word, conservative approach to this, was it was a couple epiphanies that we had about 12 to 18 months ago. The first one was we were at an event in Puerto Rico, and I remember turning to someone there after a bunch of riveting presentations, really exciting presentations, and I said to the person, I said, how many, what percentage of people in the room here, and there were probably about 500, um, do you think are capable of executing on the projects that they're working on? And the person said, I don't know, what do you think? And I said less than 2%. And the, the thing that became kind of an overwhelming, uh, at the moment it felt like crushingly negative, was that we had these hyper-optimistic people that we came to lovingly call crypto hippies, occasionally very contemptuously called crypto hippies, where we feel like it's just, it, it, it's bold and it's cool and it feels good but it's completely irresponsible and it's not going to happen. And so, you know, they're taking in stakeholders that could be employees, partners, investors, and so on, and, and literally destroying that value simply because um, their approach to it is so irresponsible. So we sat back. I remember coming back from that thinking, how do we do this differently? How do we ensure that the people that invest in us now, it's not just people with cash and capital, it's advisors, it's the people that benefit from the products and services that we're building and, and obviously the founders that we invest in. How do we make sure that not only are people not injured, but that they receive the maximum amount of value? And really quickly, we started to look at, I remember at about the same time, an investment banker who's now a friend of mine here in Toronto said, you need to create a ramp. And so what a lot of the people in the crypto world are talking about, essentially, even if they're not talking this way, they're insinuating kind of burning down the old system. And, you know, right in our non-technical investment thesis, it's to alleviate suffering. And we realized that unless we did this in a responsible way, so a safe, secure, and compliant way, we were actually going to uh, inflict a lot of damage. You know, in the startup world, there, there's the word disruption thrown around quite a bit. Not all disruption is good disruption. And disruption comes with a lot of pain and suffering. And so the question that we asked ourselves is, how do we minimize the pain and suffering of the trans transition from the old world to the new world, especially for the quote-unquote innocents? You know, the people that are just holding their retirement savings in a, a certain asset, we don't want to see that go away and evaporate. We want to provide an opportunity for this person to migrate from kind of a, a conventional paper security into a digital security you know, in the digital security and the new economy, the tokenized economy is simply just something that has more assets available to it and less gatekeepers. So to answer the question, the conservatism 
the, the very, you know, measured, meticulous approach that we've taken is to minimize the pain and suffering in the transition to the new world. God, I love that. That's great. I think we are incredibly aligned in that way. And, you know, a lot of the sort of anti-establishment, anti-financial establishment sentiment doesn't take that sort of what you what you call the the innocence into account they're they're in much more of a burn it down kind of mindset and given that we're both operating in the impact landscape i think that that kind of approach where you're trying to shift the world along gradually and peacefully and in a way that you know doesn't harm the many of the present in favor of the few of the present and the many of the future, if you can find a way to benefit the many of the present and the many of the future. Um, I think it's an extremely noble and also practical outlook since trying to disrupt the, you know, what are essentially the current power structures of the world through technology is a very delicate thing. And the more you can do so, I guess, relatively under the hood in terms of being compliant, I think is probably beneficial to investors in the short term, or at least the medium term, and probably bodes well for the sort of potential success of your vision. Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's a really great observation. And, and that, I think at some point, we've kind of always had this in, in us in terms of how we think about things in our worldview. And I'm paraphrasing right now, and I believe it was it was Martin Luther King who said that you want to transition from hate to love, you focus on the victim instead of the victimizer. And I think a lot of the time, uh, social activists and even impact investors in these crypto hippies that we talked about, understandably, like I give a lot of, uh, I have a lot of compassion for the anger that people are feeling and, and, and understand how the practical kind of reality that they find themselves in where they're, they're attacking, you know, the, the regulators and they're attacking the banks and they're attacking the quote-unquote powers that be. But really what that does, I think, is attract a fight. And, and, and we want to invest. We want to put all of our energy into the solution and not the problem. And so I think that it, just seeing the, 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 the opportunity here and understanding that we had to make a decision. Are we going to go negative? Are we going to go on the attack? Or are we going to go positive and, and, and instead focus on the solution? I think, I think it just felt right uh, uh, to approach it in that way. And I think, you know, as... As we move forward, we're starting to see, and, and in this weird kind of fake news world, and I, I mean, I mean, kind of the, the neocon conspiracy thing. There's always obviously a shred of truth in, in, in anything that anyone says, or, or there's the uh, cast wide, broad, abstracted um, claims against you know the the intentions of others. You know, like a, from the, the the groups that I just said, like heads of state and banks and so on. I think it's really easy to lose the fact that there's people inside these organizations that are good people that believe in the mandate, you know, and, and, and I had an opportunity over the last 12, uh, 16 months, we, we flew around the world. We met with heads of states, presidents of banks, uh, directors of, of uh, regulatory agencies and so on, sat down with them and really realized, first of all, our approach in this more conservative approach was tell us what your mandate is or tell us what you believe your mandate is. And obviously, the regulator is investor protection. Great. Tell us how we can support you in that. Uh, we can't object to that. We don't think that that's wrong. We may have an issue with excluding uh, a broad category of people, and we'll deal with that later. But if your uh, objective is to protect the investor by providing you know, transparency and in, 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 uh, offering memorandums and, 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 and so on, then we want to support that. So how do we support that in a way? It doesn't injure us as an investment uh, fund and also our startups. And so when we really sat down with these people, we began to uh, build kind of an empathy for their mission and a belief that they believed. Even if we didn't believe fully in the mandate or believe uh, in the application of the mandate, we believed that the people believed and that was enough to allow us to help uh, them and, and, and through that help us. And essentially what we've ended up with is what we're calling a DSO blueprint. So a digital security offering blueprint 
that has the entire system, essentially, from from banking to regulators to the ministries of finance to the heads of state to the to everyone, really, essentially co- cooperating in Congress in this way where we have this ramp from the old world to the new world. But it really started with, again, deciding that we weren't going to go on the attack. But instead, we were just going to build like these little digital architects, the new world, the new economy, the new startups inside the new world, inside the new economy, and essentially slowly build a bridge between the systems that exist today to there. And we just, again, decided to do that uh, by first understanding the system that exists today and trying to create that that an empathy and that comprehension to be able to build a bridge from 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 here to there right and i think that you know the, the big vulnerability of the current power structure is financial and i think clearly the most nonviolent approach to exiting that system you know is just to transition one's wealth um away from it you can be tax compliant legally compliant and yet in your actions um, meaningfully defund the current power structure um, in this way. So Zach, I don't know uh, if this is exactly the direction you had in mind. You know, I obviously love this zone of thinking, but I know you had some specific things you wanted to talk about. Well, let's, let's um, stay on the zone for a little bit. Uh, James is actually kind of good timing. Jack and I, a couple days ago, were discussing just the idea of like a, a subversive fund that was com- completely transparent about their compliance. So kind of what Jack was alluding to, which is having a thesis and not saying this is your thesis, but a thesis around specifically moving money away from governments, but doing so, you know, with full kind of legal compliance. And, you know, I, I was kind of wondering just even if all of that compliance is taken, like what are the odds that the relevant government that you're taking or perceiving to take capital influence away from what is the likely response regardless of what the law is. And is that how, how well can movements like that really scale if they're trying to be fully compliant? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So is the question essentially what you're asking is at what point do the uh, stakeholders, the players begin to not cooperate. I mean, is that is that the question? There's another one in there. By stakeholders, you mean like the government regulators? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. At what point? So, like, I, I think both of our funds, uh, neither of ours, the thesis is around being subversive to governments, but I think in practice, a lot of the investments are subvert subversive to existing power structures, especially for holding assets like that I think compete successfully with the US dollar, like, you know, a Bitcoin or other kind of more more private competitors to Bitcoin uh, that at least uh, our fund is invested in. And I think for now, that's that's all perfectly legal. But I think it, it's disingenuous to not acknowledge the competitive threat that is to the US dollar and therefore it's, you know, monopoly on on violence and spending and, and deficit spending. So I guess what I'm wondering is if you had whether it's an organization that explicitly is our goal is to take power influence away from the U.S. government or just an organization that, in effect, uh, was doing that. At what point, even if one is fully following the law, do you expect kind of the stakeholders like government regulators to start to try and stop this activity, even if it's not in what is generally held as the what is strictly legal right now, as we've seen over the last couple of years? Uh, you know, when when power wants to do something, it can it can do something regardless of what is a, a legal standard. Yeah, no, I mean that's that's a great observation and a great question, and one that I certainly don't have the answer to, but I have a couple of assumptions, and and it's something that we uh, discuss occasionally. So uh, for every first Friday, like a lot of organizations, we get together and we open up some bottles of wine and and, and anything goes uh, type thing and things like this come up and some people are genuinely concerned some people are just curious uh, and some people need to plan for it like they actually need a practical uh, backup plan for if and when that happens so this is something that's that's discussed occasionally and you know in spite of focusing as much as we can on the victim and focusing as much as we can on on love and compassion nonviolence we still need to have uh, an, a situational awareness right so you know, I, and, and the way that I see, you know, especially over the last 
probably two to five years, it, the the world, first of all, the world's never been better off. And, and the media, uh, you know, perverts that because negative sells the in every single measurable way from inframortality to literacy rates to uh, medium uh, median income across the world in every single category. We've had exponential improvements over the last uh, 20 to 30 years. Having said that, at the same time, I think that we see you know, a fairly significant, the powers that be, the Western powers, uh, not just government, but corporations, um, intelligence community, and so on. I think we've seen some pretty significant uh, movements and actions, uh, quite negative, actually, very violent. Uh, and it's because I think that things like this, which have been happening for, for quite some time, much smaller uh, levels, uh, disparate, not as connected. And I think what's happening now is that all these little ripples and waves are moving or forming into a tsunami and, and, and the powers that be. And again, in a very abstract way, it's hard not to create this vision of some sort of cabal and cartel and awfulness. But I think that, that just people that are feeling even fear and threatened, you know, people that did have assets that are now being challenged and questioned and buying powers diminishing and so on. And probably maybe there is a little cabal and maybe there are some really awful people out there. I don't know, but it doesn't change the fact that people that have certain types of assets and certain types of power and control are seeing a diminishing of the value of those assets and maybe the breadth and, and reach of that power and control. And so they are reacting. So I, I, a couple things. One is that the observation is very legitimate. I believe it's actually occurring. I see that a lot of the stuff that's happening in the world today is a result of that. Uh, kind of pe- the powers that be pushing back uh, at it. But I I do see it as inevitable that the power will erode in the old world and gravitate to the new world, which is much fairer. People have more access. It's decentralized, democratized, et cetera. Uh, and that's a utopian view. And there's probably a dystopian possibility as well. But the, the way that I see it, and it kind of does come down to some of the views that we have internally, me, I'd say, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but I know that some people within the organization and exponential ventures share this, but we do see nation state power eroding. You know, I see a city state future uh, for sure. And even within the city state, though, I do see nation state as a service where in the future, nation states are going to lose the kind of the dominance, the control that they've had since the beginning of uh, the human era. And instead are going to become service providers, and we're going to use nation states for residency, work, healthcare, um, vacation, retirement, et cetera. And that, again, the, the power is going to leak out of that and be really distributed and, and, and presented to the, to the world in a much different way. And that doesn't necessarily answer the question about the attack, but what I can say is that nation states are becoming much less relevant. And in this globalized world, digitized world, internet connected world, you know, in our digital uh, security offering blueprint, we have multiple jurisdictions for regulation and compliance. We have multiple jurisdictions for banking. We have multiple jurisdictions for corporate structuring, multiple jurisdictions for hiring talent and building teams. I don't know that we need permission as much uh, as we did in the past. I don't know that I personally, and maybe even the organization and the startups we invest in care what certain regulators have to say. So if certain regulators attack, then we'll we'll move to different jurisdictions. And what we've seen, and it's sad when entire uh, economies, especially the world's largest economy, is excluded from the game because the players won't play. But if that needs to happen while it weakens to the point where it decides not to care anymore, it's lost so much uh, power that it decides to play, then so be it. We're We're in this and playing the long game. So I think that where the attacks come from, we'll continue to have conversations. And, and some of these conversations with real people have allowed these real people, like at the nation state level, inside ministries of finance and inside, you know, regulators, we've had people say, holy shit, I get it now. You know, before there was fear, uncertainty and doubt, which is a famous uh, term inside the, the digital asset world. And and now the people understand it. And, and also there's a different conversation. So again, I think that the, the 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 jurisdictions and the organizations that want to play will play will continue to play more with them and those that turn on us or turn their back on the migration of of, of uh, capital and, and assets we're just going to do less and less with until they get it back on board so that's kind of our view on things yeah the current game theory of you know competing nation states definitely favors the mobile 
and makes it such that it would be hard for a sort of global attack on this technology. But definitely, for those of us living in the United States and Canada, which is everyone on this call, I think it's definitely something that you have to be cognizant of. Um, yeah, so, James, we've covered um, what made you start want to start Exponential Ventures and your sort of mission, uh, your goals. What has been your you know, sort of primary focuses um, on a more sort of granular specific uh, level in terms of trying to get these goals to come to fruition? Well, I wanted to, uh, to just mention something really quick before we move on, and that is that I also don't believe that just because I was born in a jurisdiction, I'm straddled uh, or saddled, I should say, with, with, with all the rules and regulations of that jurisdiction. Um, you know, we have the ability to form corporate persons, uh, which are corporations in foreign jurisdictions and operate uh, in certain ways. We can choose not to operate at all in that jurisdiction. So as a Canadian, I can leave here. I can, I can formally uh, give up my residency and, and move and, and, and not have be bound by any of the tax laws or any other laws in Canada for that matter while I'm not inside the country. So I do think that the, that, that, that one of the uh, greatest, uh, revelations and revolutions that will occur on the planet is when the majority of people realize that that citizenship is not something that needs in residency specifically and very especially is not uh, something that it's a choice both are, are absolutely a choice uh and 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 we should choose wisely we should choose our our residency for business we should choose our residency for banking we should choose our residency for retirement we should choose all of those things, and maybe even choose uh, multiple uh, citizenships, which I think in the next five years is going to become very much, much more distributed and 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 uh, available and cheaper and so on. But it's still very much an option for everyone that has uh, you know a reasonable amount of, of means available to them. So I think, anyway. it's, I think it's harder to shake your tax cattle status in the United States <laughs> based on my understanding of laws that apply even to, or quote-unquote apply to people who have renounced citizenship. Anyways, definitely agree, although I think, practically speaking, it can be much more challenging based on, you know, maybe interpersonal connections you have with people who aren't quite ready to abandon their ancestral home, or in the case of the United States, not too long of an ancestry, but some. No, yeah, fair. Absolutely. I wasn't saying it was easy. Uh, it's very difficult, but when you believe in something, <laughs> you, you do you do the difficult. But very, those are all valid points. And I think again, as power uh, deteriorates, especially at the nation state level, we're going to see the the breadth of the application of that power shrink, and and the significance uh, over us shrink as well. So anyway, Jack, you, sorry, you asked a question a second ago about some of the practical things that we're doing today. Is that is that what you're asking to kind of express in yeah, the world? You know, specifically, where is your focus in terms of trying to achieve these goals? Uh, it's it's 100% we've decided, and obviously we're working on, I think in the crypto world, the, the security token is, is the popular term. And we just feel there's a lot of baggage around the term token. And we think that digital security is really the, the term that uh, best represents where we're headed. And, and as soon as we can program those, and we've already started to program for example, some of the, the dividends uh, and so on that, that are often associated with securities. Now we're talking about smart securities, which are really, really interesting. So the, having really gotten clear on the fact that the vast majority of these tokens, obviously these ICOs represented securities, and just deciding that unless uh, something can be absolutely definitively proven to be a, a utility or token or, or, or currency, a cryptocurrency that we were going to consider it a security, we moved and migrated all of our attention into understanding what exactly that is. So we've you know hired Canada's largest law firm. Uh, we use a, a, a household name law firm in the U.S. and a couple other law firms around the world, like I said, talked to a lot of regulators and ministries of finance and so on and really tried to understand everyone's uh, needs Having created that that what we believe to be a comprehensive holistic blueprint and approach now, you know, the investment fund is is now prescribing this seed to S to, to DSO. So from from our seed funding, we put them on an immediate like uh, financial, legal, uh, compliance path to 
a digital uh, security offering or eventually a smart security offering. So the deal flow that we've had coming into Exponential Ventures is now you know, being filtered based on whether there is a certain blockchain aspect to the, the startup itself, whether the founder is willing to tokenize uh, or create a digital security, uh, a digital share, and whether they just want to play in that, that world. And, and should they want to do that? And should it fit our investment thesis? Otherwise, we're we're continuing to uh, to invest in these. So that will be our indefinitely our uh, sole focus is to find you know investable, uh, profitable uh, startups that alleviate suffering and expand human potential to em- enable meaningful living with a a, a viable uh, application of blockchain inside the startup in their tech stack, and then also the founder understanding and appreciating the value. Of a digital security and supporting the the business in in uh, creating that. So, from an investment standpoint, are you at this point structuring um, most of your deals through equity, and is that equity held in some sort of tokenized form? Yeah, the way that the and a lot of this is is new, and so we're taking existing existing law, obviously securities law and and, and corporate law, you know, companies law. And trying to put those things uh, against the kind of the, the digital world and, and seeing the tokenization of everything. And so the way that we view this so far, uh, and again, we've approached this with a tremendous amount of humility because as soon as we think we know what we're doing, someone smarter shows us how we can do it better or how we didn't know at all what we were doing. So um, that's, again, one of the reasons why we hired the best people and partner with the smartest people. So the current uh, model is typically a 1 billion share and 1 billion, uh, so digital share and then paper share, essentially, and that these things are married one-to-one. So at one point, not too long ago, we called them tokens. So maybe for the, the, the purposes of clear illustration, we have a, a billion digital tokens and we have a billion shares, and that the corporate bylaws essentially marry those two things together. Uh, and so if we were to go out and say sell 10%, meaning 100 million shares, we're actually selling 100 million digital uh, tokens or security tokens. And most of those tokens we've built in dividends. So we're, we're just as an invest, as investors, we believe that uh, much like in the conventional markets, buying stocks uh, that offer dividends are typically, in our opinion, the best buys. And so we've uh, built our model to, because we also believe in not building kind of horizontally, building vertically, building things that consumers want, whether it's you know B2C or B2B, uh, and, and creating startups that, that generate a lot of value for their users and also generate profits. And so dividends uh, work really well with that. So yeah, it's typically equity, uh, share equity that's represented in a, a, a security token or digital security that also offers uh, dividends. Do you think that... Um you know, something like Bitcoin, which has been sort of, I think, mostly thought of today as a store of value asset. Lightning and technology, technologies like that give it uh, the potential for more of a cash type application. But, you know, it's commonly conceived as a store of value asset. And clearly, in its current form, it's very hard to get any kind of dividend holding Bitcoin. Do you think that there's a mechanism or... How active are you in terms of uh, trying to incorporate Bitcoin into these projects and see ways for Bitcoin holders to gain interest or dividends through investing via Bitcoin in a way that could make Bitcoin more competitive with traditional stocks and what are now going to be increasingly uh, digital assets that pay dividends in terms of a long-term store of value solution? Well, so let me just clarify quick, Jack. When you say Bitcoin, are you including all of the currencies or just Bitcoin in, in, in itself? We could, for a sake of conversation, expand to include you know, all the sort of currencies that are in some way attempting to be a place where wealth could be stored. Now, who is defining themselves like that or who is a likely candidate to you know, achieve that status? That is maybe beyond the scope of today's conversation. But you know, in whatever you think, whatever you think is best in terms of having productive dialogue, uh, I'm comfortable with. Okay, cool. Yeah, and at the risk of 
picking a fight with uh, with you, Jack, or, or, or Zach, or both of you, but just as an observation, because I think it's important moving forward. I mean, I have, a, I have an issue, as many do, with, with Bitcoin. Satoshi's pay, uh, paper was a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, not a peer-to-peer store of value system. So I, I that's why I wanted to clarify. I think if we're talking about the frictionless, uh, cost-effective, third-party lists, system of exchanging value from person to person you know that's something that we are extremely excited to be a part of and to me again uh seeing some of the other currencies come 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 up and allow for and also fight for so i you know i don't necessarily have a grand judgment against the future of bitcoin i don't get a really uh, understand a store of value uh purpose or use case or proposition i don't see a lot of value in that myself um, I can figure out other ways to store value. I think that figuring out how to get people to transact quicker. So going back to our original conversation at the beginning, at the, the top of the hour was how in, in all transactions, not just commercial transactions, but how do we share quicker without third party intermediation? So how do we disintermediate and allow people to share in a, in a, in a, a trustless way quicker? So anyway, having, having clarified that my, my, for, for me personally, I guess, you know, the a lot of the, the startups that we're investing in, and that's why it's not just the security token or the digital security part of it that's important to us. Because essentially, you could you could do a DSO for someone selling flowers at the corner, and not that that's wrong or bad. In fact, I love that idea because I love the the uh, securitization of everything and allowing anyone to invest five dollars in in the lady selling flowers at the at the corner. And she issues a billion dollars on that little, or a billion uh, shares on that little business is joyous to me, uh, and and everyone having access to that I think is fantastic. But but I think that for us in our investment thesis, seeing that the application from a technology, a tech stack standpoint, you know, we need to see the the, the a viable, impactful application of, of of blockchain within within the the tech stack. Now, how that's uh, applied it, you know we've, we've looked at many many different uh, applications to it and many of them are very interesting and a lot of them don't involve uh, currencies so we have looked at two uh, du- uh, dual currencies so a security token and a utility token or a security token and a currency and seeing that there's some value in that but you know the way that i see the future of cryptocurrency uh, or the future of, of, of blockchain, I should say, is that it's in. It'll be behind everything. No one will even know it's there. So just like we don't know that there's email servers and web servers and databases, that really we go to a web page and all this stuff is compiled and shown to us. I think that blockchain and even cryptocurrencies, to a large degree, whether that's Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever is invented next, we put our finger, our thumbprint on our on our mobile phone and we tap something. That's the promise that's you know when we have something that's really special and obviously very proliferated is when there's no friction and there maybe even is no awareness it just works type thing it's cheap fast uh, safe secure i touch it i you know i'm able i get my 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 salary in this thing a couple taps i can change currencies or whatever but then i point a sale i tap it and it just happens so i i for me and i don't know if this answers the question and you can ask it again or ask uh, another question if you like but to me the answer is we don't we're, we want all of this to be seamless behind the the human experience and just allow for more humans to do more things with more humans if that makes sense james so two two que- follow-up questions from that first what is the project you're looking at that has a kind of security token and currency and two given you want to pr- promote more kind of spending and transacting and not like, storing wealth. What are your views on uh, Bitcoin Cash and kind of the debate between you know the, the two major kind of communities in, in Bitcoin? Yeah, that second question's a doozy. Um, so the first, and, I, and again, I'm trying to, especially in kind of the, the qualification or discussion period, you know, I'm wanting to be respectful of out of the startup and what I would uh, represent here. Let me come back to the to the first question in a second. So just in, in, in the background, I can sure. think about what, what I can say and what I can't say or what I should say and shouldn't say. That is, I'm, I'm, I don't mean by being, I don't mind being controversial, but I definitely don't want to be disrespectful. So on the second issue, I mean, we, we, we 
because of one of our investments, I actually got pretty deep into that debate in terms of just understanding it and getting a lot of opinions around it. And so, you know, Bitcoin Cash also forked, which is uh, really interesting. And we saw, you know, Roger Ver and Jihan Wu end up on one side, Craig S. Wright and Calvin Air end up on the other side. And I think we've seen a disagreement there. And so, you know, it, it, it really challenges the, the initial assumption that, Bit, that Bitcoin was off and that Bitcoin Cash was, was correct. I mean, I, my personal view, uh, based on the information that I have, and I don't need to be right on this, and I don't, I'm not a, this, you know, a fundamentalist in any way. I'm a fundamentalist for the people and, and for abundance, and I don't care how we get there. Uh, I'm willing to sacrifice myself for the revolution. So as a revolutionary, I'm happy to get out of the way if someone's doing a better job and I'm not going to waste any time in an argument. My, my suspicion, uh, based on the evidence that I have, is that Bitcoin core has fallen off course. It's not compatible with the initial uh, white paper and the initial intention. The Bitcoin cash came about as a result of that and that the current Bitcoin cash that's really supported by Roger Ver and Jihan Wu is you know, Satoshi's original vision. So my, my opinion and, and their view and having talked to, to Roger and people at Bitmain, you know, they're just big believers in e-commerce, that, that Bitcoin commerce, that thing that I mentioned a minute ago about just a cheap, maybe free, frictionless uh, exchange, you know, again, a peer-to-peer money system, which is the original vision. So I would think that of all the people working on this, I, I still think that Jihan and Roger are the ones that are most committed to that original vision of a peer-to-peer system. It doesn't mean that anyone else doing anything else, including the Bitcoin core team, are wrong or bad. They just have a different vision and different applications. So that would be my answer on the Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash situation. Um, yeah, so I, following up on that, there's kind of, I guess, two questions, like sub-questions wrapped up in what I asked. And one of what you just answered, which is kind of which which project is kind of fulfilling, like, the vision that you want to see and that you would argue is kind of more in line with uh, Satoshi's original vision. I would happen to agree with that. And then the second is, does that make a good investment? And that's kind of where the tokenomic structure and questions around velocity come in and, and curious to your opinion on that. So a good investment in Bitcoin Cash, you mean? Like holding Bitcoin Cash? Yes. Not the infrastructure built on top of it, but the, the actual asset itself. Yeah, and I guess if we really see it as a true currency, we'd, we the same question would we could ask the same question with the U.S. dollar or whatever country you live in. Like, how much do you hold in cash and fiat and kind of treasury management from you know even a personal level? So this home, my home, how much do I want to hold in cash and how much do I want to hold in stocks and bonds and real estate and so on? And I think that again, the tokenization of everything. I mean, we're ri- literally looking at tokens that are securities and utilities and currencies and that everyone should have just a great treasury management plan um and i think the bitcoin cash is uh i do believe that right now the odds are it will be the currency that will be the first true distributed point of sale currency with mass adoption that could be wrong and again i'm not i'm not attached to being wrong i'm okay with being wrong but that's my 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 assessment i think that that holding bitcoin cash and first of all i don't i, I think it's speculating is 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 a threat to the vision and again i'm not going to judge anyone for doing that uh, good treasury management for some may mean speculation and day trading we personally we don't do any of that personally as individuals or as a collective, as 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 a fund, or as an organization, we won't we won't do that uh, intentionally, very intentionally. So holding uh, little bits for the purposes of speculation really isn't compatible with how we we see the future. I think holding uh, some you know cryptocurrency as just a matter of proper treasury management, whether that's ten percent of your personal wealth or the company wealth uh is probably intelligent so i know that i don't mean to evade the question i just don't think that we see holding cryptocurrency well i guess yeah i'm not i mean the question is do you see it as a good investment not as exponential venture is going to make the investment well i think there's a positive expected value from holding bitcoin cash now over x amount of a period and i'm speaking long term and that long term could mean a year five years ten years but that that's kind of what I'm, i'm asking yeah, I know, and I, maybe I didn't answer it as directly as I should. I guess the my answer would be yes, but but my real answer is 
until we stop doing that, we're not using Bitcoin Cash properly. So, you know, I would only hold as much Bitcoin Cash as I would hold Canadian dollars, for example, if we're looking at a one-to-one from kind of the conventional world to the new world. I just don't think that people should hold, you know, Bitcoin Cash. I think they should use it, right? Just like you use dollars. And maybe, you know, U.S. dollars in your bank account is not really the same as in your hands. You know, those are digital dollars that could be the same as yen or or pesos or whatever. It's really kind of, to me, the moment that it's spent, that it becomes that thing. So I would just love people to stop holding Bitcoin Cash and start using it. You know, that the pro- that's the real promise and where I get really excited. Sure. So wh- where do you where do you recommend people store wealth in if not Bitcoin Cash? What are some assets you think are good places to store wealth? Well, I mean, it's a really tough uh, place right now. Obviously, the entire digital asset world is is uh, is very, very uncertain, and so I can't I can't prescribe that. I can tell you, I can tell you what I do. I, you know, I probably shouldn't even speak for the organization, but you know, I I do have uh, you know some Bitcoin, some Bitcoin Cash, a little bit of Ethereum, and then where I put most of my digital assets is in projects I believe in, and I'm okay again with being wrong. So. You know, a, a Humanique, for example, really excites me, and that's something that I bought a long time ago, and probably I'm down, you know, 97%, and I don't care because I totally believe in what they're doing. Um, there's probably 40 other cryptocurrencies or utility tokens that that I have, uh, you know, fairly significant holdings in, and I do it on a principle basis uh, and also on a belief basis. I just absolutely believe in the mission, the vision. So there's a there's a, a little bit of, of digital asset holdings that I do probably just to make sense of the rest of it but most of my investment is not done from from personal investment i should say right now obviously with the fund there's a, a fiduciary responsibility and and that treasury management happens a lot differently but uh, me personally I, I just will only invest in, in the projects i believe in and to the degree that i believe in them i guess is is probably the more accurate answer yeah well thanks for being so forthcoming james around that especially on, you know, differentiating that, you know, as an investment manager for your fund, you have fiduciary responsibility, but that, you know, I, th- I think it's noble and to be commended that you're betting on things that you believe in, even if you can't necessarily to yourself justify kind of a long-term expected value. I personally hope to be at a financial place where I can do more of that later in life, hopefully not too soon off in the future. Yeah. Totally. I guess, yeah. So first of all, thanks for saying that. I appreciate hearing that. Um, sometimes it's hard to invest in what you believe in, especially when the sure bet is right beside it. But, you know, I'm just a big believer in we we put our money in and that can be uh, in a consumable way. So buying a product at the supermarket or it could be an investment way where you're putting money into something that grows into something else is that just to put your money into the to what you want to see more of in the world. And so because I believe in that, fundamentally and principally and at my core you know that's also i guess how i invest i also buy products that i believe in because <laughs> i want to see less of the other products and more of these products and i typically pay a lot more for my products so yeah well james i'm i'm curious because i think the distinction you're making about like we have our cash that we go to the grocery store with and then we have our assets that we hold in terms of uh storing our wealth or you know let's just call it the non-grocery type of asset. That seems like a sort of distinction that is a result primarily of the fact that we live in a inflationary a world in an inflationary economy where it's irresponsible to hold more than like what you need over you know any sort of given time period in cash. And you could imagine a world, you know the world that you're helping to build with tokenized securities where you could go to the grocery store and potentially pay for your groceries with, you know, tokenized uh, family stocks or what, you know, whatever it might be. And so your your desire that people only that they don't hold Bitcoin Cash to speculate and that they only hold it the way that we would use cash in today's environment, it strikes me as odd because I think you know one of the most or one of the best aspects of a cryptocurrency is its, you know, resistance against government inflation, which is the reason why we we are relegated to using cash in this very limited way in the current structure. So, 
I guess I'm just wondering if you could speak more on why you feel that holding something like Bitcoin Cash is antithetical to like its primary purpose, which is a peer-to-peer payment system. All I can say is you're absolutely right. And we have two systems that are competing with each other, the old system and the new system. And that inflationary uh, model that we live in, which is largely a result of, of uh, third-party interloping and intermediation, is what disallows for that. So it creates liquidity versus illiquidity, creates different asset classes. It, it promotes that idea of hedging against inflation and, and so on. You're 100% correct. And so in that new world, that may not be what happens. And I, and I would hope inflation is, uh, is, 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 is a byproduct of all these things. It doesn't need to exist. It's one of the most harmful things to the economy and, in my opinion, therefore, uh, the planet. And so I would love to see that largely go away, if not entirely go away. And if that did come to, to be the case, which I hope it is, then I think you're right. I, I think it wouldn't necessarily you know, matter unless we're you know, investing in things that actually increase dramatically in value, which, again, I mean, you know, the, the, the distortion, the whole derivatives markets and futures and options and all the things that distort the real value of things. If all of that is corrected then we have things that probably don't grow at nearly as quickly in value. And so therefore, you know, holding one thing versus another uh, wouldn't have such a dramatic impact on, on the treasury. Uh, so, you know, I'll just answer that question by saying you're absolutely correct. And I hope that the new model in the new world doesn't have with it so much volatility and so much real extraction of wealth of certain types of assets. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can definitely get behind though, I, I guess I didn't make this clear. The the sort of holding expense of adoption, I do think, is a, a reality of the current situation in a mindset worth fighting against. You know, not wanting to spend your Bitcoin on Amazon. You know, using you know the various plugins that are now available. It's it's fine because you know you'd rather just spend your dollars, but you're you're definitely hurting the development of the economy with that mindset. But I don't know. I think especially for like those that like us that live in the West where we don't really have, there's always some risk, but a very, very small risk of let's say our assets getting seized. Bitcoin doesn't, I think particularly provide whether Bitcoin, original Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash. I don't think either of them provide a significant advantage to at least when I'm buying something on Amazon to using a credit card and getting points and getting rid of my inflationary dollars. You know, I, I think it's that's relatively trivial and that those that really get significant value from Bitcoin are, are those that live in most countries around the world where they have currencies that are way more inflationary than the U.S. and the risk of asset seizure is a lot higher. And I think just trying to get adoption in the places where people get the most value from it is going to do a lot more for the ecosystem than just us using it for, you know, kind of normal everyday purchases. You got to do your part, man. You got to do your part feel like I'm doing more more than my part a lot of the other stuff. I <laughs> yeah, do. maybe, I guess. I guess there's a piece that you're doing your part. That's a really interesting comment. I just want to comment on it really quickly. And you're absolutely correct. And, and uh, one, of the, one of the most thought-provoking comments that anyone's ever made to me was an economist that turned to me and we were having a conversation very much like this and said to me, the U.S.'s largest export is inflation. And I just, it absolutely cracked me in half. And the implications of that are just so, so significant from a global economics, monetary standpoint, et cetera. And I think that inflation is coming home soon. Uh, so I just want to say that, that you're absolutely right. We should see this in, in, in nations that, that have uh, much more inflation and volatility and, and are much more likely to, to have seizures and so on. Uh, at the same time, and I think that there is, um, you know, a, an opportunity for us, like we saw in the 2007-8 Global financial meltdown. And I think that, that, that a lot of opportunity comes through uh, challenges. I think that in the West, we're going to see continued disruption of economic systems and we're going to start to see, you know, some hyperinflation and, and things that we haven't seen before, especially as the US dollar loses its world reserve status, which is really what's, I think, protected that, that, that major export of inflation. So I just see a, uh, an opportunity, though, for the West, and, and obviously all the Western currencies are very tied heavily to the to the success and, and stability of the U.S. dollar. I think we're all going to experience that. 
there's an opportunity for us to 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 get out in front of that as well. So just throw that out there. Okay, James. So there's a uh, kind of just one more sphere of things you want to talk about, which is specific tokenomic structures. After all, this is the tokenomics podcast. So I'm just going to ask kind of a few different questions and let you kind of take it from here. Your favorite tokenomic structures, overhyped structures, thoughts on how uh, security tokens can enable new forms of tokenomic structures that haven't been tried yet. Wow. Yeah, that's a great question. And again, we are on a tokenomics uh, podcast here. And one, one more for you, James, actually. Are there any assets that you've invested in or are looking into that have kind of particularly innovative structures? I think that, and again, you know, I'll use the, the word that Jack used earlier, conservative, in seeing you know, a lot of the, the mistakes that were made early on with some of the tokenomics uh, plays, obviously, that weren't really considering um, not only you know, investor, investor comfort and investor uh, security, but just uh, securities law in general. I think that we have really looked at the tokenomics need to come back down to, to the basics, to uh, something that represents an actual unit of value that, that also delivers an additional unit of value. So the security represents a share, and the share produces a dividend, and that we get back to the, the fundamental you know, qualities of a profit-generating uh, enterprise. And, you know, again, seeing that, and, and answer the question earlier about the thing that we're looking at, the dual token, we're looking at a, essentially a platform of practitioners, uh, we'll just call them business uh, service providers. Some of the best in the world, uh, many of them household names, hundreds right now with thousands uh, coming into the to the system. And, and there's a security uh, token application for the enterprise itself. And then uh, there's actually a really nice application of blockchain internally to uh, control and maintain the integrity of the data on the platform. And then they've introduced a, a currency that will help to facilitate the trade and transfer of value between the consumer and the practitioner. And the reason why I think that that's viable, you could say, well, what about Bitcoin Cash or Ethereum or Bitcoin or anything for that matter? And I think that the intention is to provide that as uh, an option as well, well, other forms of payment. But these, uh, this platform is working with uh, multiple levels of government. They're working in, on every single continent um, except for Antarctica, obviously, and are just working with such a diverse range of people in, in a very specific way that I think it's justified a, a currency. And, and that was a very difficult thing uh, to justify. I don't think we take that lightly because I think that the value of crypto in the future, digital assets in the future, whether it's security, utility, or currency, is to make sure that there isn't unnecessary uh, redundancies or copycats or things that really uh, allow for facilitate injury to others or just minimize the impact of the um, superior thing. So, you know, when someone says we want to do this, we say why or why not anything else in the market. And often I'd say probably high 90% of the time there isn't a justifiable answer. So the tokenomics, back to the, the question of to tokenomics, I say that because I do think that it really does come down to just very clear value representation to to the investor and producing the profits and, and sharing those with the investor through a dividend and that potentially uh, adding a utility or a currency into probably not the larger ecosystem but a more narrow ecosystem so you have the flexibility of modifying that utility or modifying that currency where obviously you wouldn't be able to do that Largely, if you were to use a third-party utility token or currency, is a great path for many. So I'll leave it at that, and if there's any additional questions. But I think for me, it's just getting back to the fundamentals and providing uh, real units of value. Yeah, so just if I could try to summarize what you said and let me know if you agree, kind of the innovative tokenomic structures that you know Jack and I kind of look to, of which our fund has invested in, you purposely kind of stay away from those and are looking to more bring in kind of traditional notions of equity and unit of account and not kind of experiment with new things. Yeah. And so I would add to that. Yes. And I would add to that. Where are those tokenomics adding value to anyone other than 
you know, the enterprise itself. And I'm not saying they're not. But the question would be if someone, if a founder came in and said, we have this really novel idea around tokenomics. And we've studied every, you know, as far as we can tell, every version of tokenomics out there. Uh, and a lot are brilliant, like genius. Like we were just in, impressed with the intelligence. Like economists must have built some of these models. But the question that will always come down to is who's getting value for this, right? So if you're talking about constraining, burning, restricting, holding, you know, all these different ways of inflating the value of something, to what end? And, and, and if it is really just to enrich, and I'm not suggesting any of your investments or anyone in particular is doing this, but if it's really just to enrich the founders of the startup, it's not something we'd ever be interested in. If it is really to to uh, good uh, treasury management, good monetary policy, and if the uh, mid to long term game is to actually increase the value of the stakeholders of the enterprise, the investors and everyone, the consumer and so on, I think that any sort of tokenomic concept would be interesting to us, so long as it actually creates true, real, measurable, stable uh, value. Well, I think stable is going to be hard with any early stage venture, regardless if it's crypto or not. But understand the point. <laughs> yeah, James, we've taken a lot of your time, and we really, really appreciate uh, everything you've added here. I feel like I learned a lot, personally. Uh, I don't always say that, but this time it's true. And... We would love to have you on again sometime in the future to, you know, you know once the empire has fallen and you know, we can just kind of revel in the new world. I'm looking forward to that. That's great. So I had a great time too, uh, guys. Thank you very much for inviting me on. And I look forward to even halfway through when we're halfway across the bridge, uh, we can be looking at both the old world and the new world and talking about how wrong I was on many of my predictions. So thanks, guys. Appreciate it.